I'm your host, Tal Lee. And I'm your co-host, Anissa Kasim. We will be introducing you to a remarkable skill birds have used for a millennia called remote sensing. And we will explore the ways in which some modern day birds have lost this valuable skill and how some have retained it. Imagine having to detect the tiniest vibrations in the ground to find yourself and your flock food, much like echolocation in mammals like dolphins. Before its discovery, this intricate process was often thought to be trial and error attempts. This once unknown skill is called remote sensing, a skill common in certain bird species like kiwis, ibises, and some shorebirds. It basically means that these birds are able to detect their prey without using their sense of touch or sight. So they rely only on other senses like detecting vibrations or even the reflection of sound waves off the hard-shelled prey like insects under the ground. This use of remote sensing for the detection of prey is an example of birds relying on not only their vision but other sensory systems. Furthermore, there was a need to elucidate the main functions of curious structures visible in birds capable of remote sensing, such as the ibises. Although a series of experiments, it became clear that these birds were reliant solely on remote sensing rather than the use of their olfactory or auditory senses. But to the surprise of us and other investigating scientists, some modern-day birds have these unexplainable structures that should in theory be capable of remote sensing but are not used. Why have these structures if they can no longer use them? Did they lose the skill? What can they rely on instead? For these questions, we turn to expert Carla Dutoy, a PhD student at the Fitzpatrick Institute of African Ornithology. So one of the first questions we have for you is, how did ancient bird ancestors and their structural makeup allow them to form this ability to remote sense? Well, in order to be able to use this remote sensing ability, which they use to detect, we call it remote touch, and they use it to detect vibrations in the ground or water, that come from their invertebrate prey items. And um, in order to do this, they have a specialized organ in their beak called Wilton organ. And yeah, that basically allows them to detect those tiny little mechanical vibrations. In terms of the makeup that let them have it, we're not entirely sure just yet, but it seems like, well, we know now that it's very, very old in, um, in modern birds, that it evolved in this lineage of birds called lithonithids which are the ancestors of the birds called paleognates or ratites, which include like the big flightless birds like ostrich and emu, the smaller little birds like kiwi. And birds evolved in the late Cretaceous period, so just before the large extinction event that wiped out all the non-avian dinosaurs. Organ and the related sense evolved very early on in birds. It's possible it could have developed from other sensory structures in their theropod dinosaur ancestors. So obviously those two-legged meat-eating dinosaurs, and they wouldn't have been doing like probing in the ground for worms as we see the birds doing today. But there is some evidence that some of these large theropod dinosaurs had specialized structures there. Now, they could have let them detect vibrations in water, and this would be similar to how crocodiles hunt today. Possibly, probably, as far as we know. But we still need a lot more studies to be able to confirm that. And how does the beak aid in the bird's ability to remote sense? So, as I said, they have this organ at their, in their beak. And it is made up of lots and lots of little mechanical mechanoreceptors, which are like sensory receptors that detect mechanical vibrations. 
and these receptors are clustered together in little pits or holes in the bone of the beak. These little pits are what we can see if you just look at the beak bones of birds which have this specialized filter organ and which have been preserved in some fossil specimens which we studied. And so these little receptors are able to, you know, they, the birds probe their beak into the ground or water. And if there's a little worm or something moving around in the ground, it will create vibrations in the sediment. And those will come into contact with the bird's beak and the spilter organ can detect them. Alternatively, some of the probing birds hunt for things like mollusks and little mussels and stuff, so they wouldn't be producing vibrations. But what those birds actually do is they probe their beak and allow the ground really rapidly. And that probing action actually generates vibrations that are then reflected back off the hard shells uh, back to the birds. And that's, those reflected vibrations are what the birds use to um, detect their prey. It turns out that the bill tips on these birds are pitted with small indentations that contain these pockets of motion detecting organs called Irvis corpuscles. These structures are embedded in these pits and enable the birds to sense prey even under wet sand and soil. So are these structures just specific to probing birds? No, so it's only found in probe foraging birds and not all probe foraging birds have it. So there's only three lineages of modern birds that have this sensory organ and are able to use it. And that is the kiwi from New Zealand, ibises and little shorebirds like sandpipers and godwits and other things like that. So they come from a, from a family of birds called scolopacids. So those are the three groups of modern birds, probe foraging birds that have this organ and are able to use it. But what we found, what was really interesting, is that all modern paleocase or ratites, so the big things like ostriches and emus, also have a similar organ in their beak. But obviously they, they don't probe forage food. So we saw this and we thought it was really strange because we didn't understand why they would need to have a built organ like this. And so we thought, okay, or maybe it could be that it's like a vestigial state left over from a previous ancestor. And so we started looking to see fossil paleognates or early paleognates. And we found looking at the Lithornithus, which are very, very early paleognathus birds, or the earliest ones we know of actually from the fossil record. And we're very lucky because there were some specimens with like really, really well-preserved feet, which isn't always the case with the fossil record. So we were able to study those and we found that they do have the other characteristics, along with the filter organ, that indicated they were probe foraging and able to use this remote touch sense. And so that's why we see it in all the birds like ostriches and things that are not descended from the Lithornithid, but related to them. So it's like a vestigial state left over from a previous ancestor. That may seem like a lot of information, but the main takeaways from this study is that Asian birds like Lithornithids rely on this remote sensing as a part of their survival. And as a result, pass down these structures to enable this skill to modern day birds, with the caveat being that only some birds like the previously mentioned ibises and kiwis are fully capable of using it effectively, while others no longer find a need for such a skill in finding prey, but still have remnants of these vestigial structures. So aside from the structures, in the three lineages of birds that use it today, so the ibises, the sandpipers, and the kiwis, they also have the areas of their brain that interpret tactile information from their beaks are enlarged compared to all other birds, meaning, you know, like, so when we find things like that, we call a hypertrophy, so it just means it's like overdeveloped. And the reason for it is obviously 
or they need to process tactile information from their beaks. So they do have these like enlarged brain centers to do that. But then if we look at the ostriches and things, even though they have a built-up organ, they don't have the enlargement of the brain areas. They've lost those enlarged brain areas. So they're actually not using, probably not able to use this organ to sense anymore. It's just kind of there and hasn't been lost yet. That's fascinating. So did you guys find any structural connections between early um, ancestors and modern-day remote sensing birds? Other similarities are looking at their beaks. They have some of their beak shapes and they have these like long pointed beaks, which is indicative of foraging in general so like all birds that forage today whether they can use remote cuts or not have these long pointed beaks so based on that before we did our study it's already been hypothesized that these lithornithids were able to forage and based on other aspects of their morphology like they've got long legs they look quite similar to other wading or foraging birds that we have today so it's been well established for a long time that they're semi-aquatic birds and then that now paired with our findings of the tactile organ on their beak. It's, yeah, so that's what supports it. That they already knew they kind of had a lifestyle that could have supported this. And finding the organ just kind of reinforces that. So adding on to that question, would remote sensing be more advantageous than using your other sensory skills? There have been several experiments looking at how they are able to use their different senses to catch food. And I'm actually working or have just worked on some ibises from Southern Africa. And what we do is we give them like trays of soil with worms buried in it, and then they can go around in it to find the worms. And in order to see how, you know, how dependent they are on being able to detect the vibrations, we cut off their other senses. So we do things like, obviously they can't see the worms, so we know they're not using sight. And then to make sure they can't hear the worms, we have like a little speaker next to the trays and we play like white noise so that would drown out any sound signals that would be coming. And to make sure they can't smell the worms, we take like um, mashed up worms and mix it in with soil. So then obviously the whole soil tray smells like worms, so they wouldn't be able to differentiate. And finally, we test their ability to sense vibrations by putting dead worms in the soil versus live worms. So the live worms will produce vibrations, whereas the dead worms aren't moving, so won't. And what we find, and what other people have found in other lineage birds doing these kinds of experiments, is that firstly, the birds are way more successful at finding the worms when they're alive, so when they do have these vibrational cues available. And that if we take away, you know, if they can't see the worms or they can't hear them or they can't smell them, they're still able to catch them as well as when they have that sensory information available. So for the shorebird or the sandpipers and ibises, they're using like the most important sense for them to locate their prey is remote touch and when they're probing. So based on the experiment just described, the remote sensing birds like sandpipers and ibises use their most important feature, which is the remote touch, and this aided them in successfully finding their live prey at a higher rate than the other birds using their normal sensory skills. I believe that kiwis, ibises, and sandpipers are not in the same order, right? No, they're actually really widely separated. So as I said, like, so one bird split into two big groups, the paleognates, which we talked about, which is the ostriches and kiwis, and then all other modern birds are known as neognates, and that's everything from ducks to nightingales. So kiwis are in the paleognates, 
Ibises and sandpipers are in the neoglade, so those are like widely, very widely evolutionally separated. And even within the neoglade, the kiwis and ibises come from different orders, they're not even sister orders to each other. So it seems like this sensory specialization evolved convergently at least two or three times in one bird. So in the paleognate, it evolved a really long time ago, as we've shown, and um, then sort of re evolved or re emerged in the kiwi. Whereas in ibises and shorebirds, we're not 100% sure how it evolved there because obviously we still need to look at more fossil work and hopefully some genetic um, studies will also elucidate that. But we can tell that it, it evolved separately, which also shows like that the it probably indicates that like the genetic underpinnings that would allow this sort of organ to evolve very um, very conserved across um, all birds because the fact that it can evolve so easily in separate occasions kind of indicated of that. And it also just shows how, how useful it is, the fact that something like this has evolved multiple times. Um, yeah. No, that, that's just very interesting. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of weird evolutionary things that have happened in the paleognates, and it seems like this loss and regain of remote touch is just another example of, um, you know, of that just being lost. But why they kept the organ, like why do they still have it if they're not using it? Um, I mean, there are quite a few examples in... Um, you know, in evolution, not just in birds, but like whales, some of them still have these like vestigial little hind limb bones that we don't use, which are like an artifact of way back when their ancestors lived on land and things like that. So structures like that are preserved, but they lost their like brain regions that process that information because developing and maintaining brain tissue is extremely energetically expensive. So they'd lose that before they lose the organ. And so, I mean, obviously the fact that they still have it shows that having the organ isn't expensive or detrimental, but they just don't need it. They haven't lost it. So yeah, animals are always adapting that, but yeah. So we hope you enjoyed our interview with PhD researcher Carla Dutoy, doing really great work in this field and was such a great help in helping us understand how this skill actually works and what structures aid it in functioning. Thankfully, due to her university's abundant collection of avian skeletal remains, she was able to analyze the skeletal remains of these birds along with their early ancestors, the thornithids. And surprisingly, she found out that some birds that are not known to remote sense still had these structures. Puzzled by the issue, she began to research more into this topic and realized that leftovers from the evolutionary journey of these non-remote sensing birds. More research in this field will aid us into understanding how birds process vibrational information and the benefits that come with it, along with more fascinating questions about how future bird species may evolve into reusing the skill due to environmental changes that may occur on Earth due to the effects of climate change. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast and were able to learn something new from us and our esteemed guest, Dr. Duthoid. Remember to always explore the world around you because you may never know what cool and interesting things you may stumble upon. <laughs> <laughs>